Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Treadtime story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is Aurelia, or The Tale of the Ghoul, by E. T. A. Hoffman. Count Hippolytus had just returned from a long time spent traveling to take possession of the rich inheritance which his father, recently dead, had left to him. The ancestral home was situated in the most beautiful and charming country imaginable, and the income from the property was amply sufficient to defray the cost of the most extensive improvements. Whatever in the way of architecture and landscape gardening had struck the Count during his travels, particularly in England, as specially delightful and opposite, he was going to reproduce in his own demands. Architects, landscape gardeners, and laborers of all sorts arrived on the scene as they were wanted and were commenced at once a complete reconstruction of the place, whilst an extensive park was laid out on the grandest scale, which involved the including boundaries of the church, the parsonage, and the burial grounds. All those improvements the Count, who possessed the necessary knowledge, superintended himself, devoting himself to this occupation, body, and soul, so that a year slipped away without its ever having occurred to him to take an old uncle's advice and let the light of his countenance shine in the residence before the eyes of the young ladies, so that the most beautiful, the best, and the most nobly born amongst them might fall to his share as a wife. One morning, as he was sitting at his drawing table sketching the ground plan of a new building, a certain elderly baroness, distantly related to his father, was announced to have come calling. When Hippolytus heard her name, he remembered that his father had always spoken of her with the greatest indignation. Nay, with absolute abhorrence, and had often warned people who were going to approach her to keep aloof without explaining what the danger connected with her was. If he was questioned more closely, he said there were certain matters as to which it was better to keep silent. Thus much was certain that there were rumors current in the residence of some most remarkable and unprecedented criminal trial in which the baroness had been involved, which had led to her separation from her husband, driven her from her home, which was at some point a considerable distance, and for the suppression of the consequences of which she was indebted to the prince's forbearance. Hippolytus felt a very painful and disagreeable impression at the coming of a person whom his father had so detested although the reasons for his detestation were not known to him. But the laws of hospitality, more binding in the country than in town, obliged him to receive this visit. Never had anyone, without being at 
at all ill-favored in the usual acceptation of that term, made by her exterior such a disagreeable impression upon the Count as did this Baroness. When she came in, she looked him through and through with a glance of fire, and then she cast her eyes down and apologized for her coming in terms which were almost over-humble. She expressed her sorrow that his father, influenced by prejudices against her with which her enemies had impregnated his mind, had formed a mortal hatred to her, and though she was almost starving, In the depths of her poverty, he had never given her the smallest help or support. As she had now, unexpectedly, as she said, come into possession of a small sum of money, she had found it impossible to leave the residence and go to a small country town a short distance off. However, as she was engaged in this journey, she had not found it possible to resist the desire to see the son of the man whom, notwithstanding his irreconcilable hatred, she had never ceased to regard with feelings of the highest esteem. The tone in which all this was spoken had the moving accents of sincerity, and the Count was all the more affected by that. Having turned his eye away from her repulsive face, he had fixed them upon a marvelously charming and beautiful creature who was with her. The baroness finished her speech. The count did not seem to be aware that she had done so. He remained silent. She begged him pardon and attributed to her embarrassment at being where she was, her having neglected to explain that her companion was her daughter, Aurelia. On this, the count found words and blushing up to the eyes implored the baroness, with the agitation of a young man overpowered by love, to let him atone in some degree for his father's shortcomings, the result of misunderstandings, and to favor him by paying him a long visit. In warmly enforcing this request, he took her hand, but the words and breath died away on his lips and his blood ran cold for he felt his hand grasped as if in a vice by fingers cold and stiff as death. And the tall, bony form of the baroness was staring at him with eyes evidently deprived of the faculty of sight, seemed to him in its gay mind tinted attire like some bedizened corpse. Oh, good heavens! How unfortunate just at this moment, Aurelia cried out and went on to lament in a gentle, heart-penetrating voice that her mother was now and then seized by a teutonic spasm, but that it generally passed off very quickly without it being necessary to take any measures with regard to it. Hippolytus disengaged himself with some difficulty from the baroness, and all the glowing life of sweetest love, delight came back to him as he took Aurelia's hand and pressed it warmly to his lips. Although he had almost come to man's estate, it was the first time that he felt the full force of passion, so that it was impossible for him to hide what he felt and the manner in which Aurelia received his avowal in a noble, simple, childlike delight 
kindled the fairest of hopes within him. The baroness recovered in a few minutes, and, seemingly quite unaware of what had been happening, expressed her gratitude to the Count for his invitation to pay a visit of some duration at the castle. Saying that she would be but too happy to forget the injustice with which his father had treated her. Thus, the Count's household arrangements and domestic position were completely changed, and he could not but believe that some special favor of fortune had brought to him the only woman in the world who, as a warmly beloved and deeply adored wife, was capable of bestowing upon him the highest conceivable happiness. The Baroness's manner of conduct underwent little alteration. She continued to be silent, grave, much wrapped up in herself, and when opportunity offered, evinced a gentle disposition and a heart disposed towards any innocent enjoyment. The Count had become accustomed to the death-like whiteness of her face, to the very remarkable network of wrinkles which covered it, and to the generally spectral appearance with which she displayed. But all this he set down to the invalid condition of her health, and also, in some measure, to a disposition which she invents to gloomy romanticism. The servants told him that she often went for walks in the night, through the park to the churchyard. He was much annoyed that his father's prejudices had influenced him to the extent that they had, and the most earnest recommendations of his uncle that he should conquer the feeling which had taken possession of him and give up a relationship which must sooner or later drive him to his ruin had no effect upon him. In complete certainty of Aurelia's sincere affection, he asked for her hand, and it may be imagined with what joy the baroness received this proposal which transferred her into the lap of luxury from a position of deepest poverty. The pallor and the strange expression, which spoke of some invincible inward pain or trouble, had disappeared from Aurelia's face. The blissfulness of love beamed in her eyes and shimmered in roses on her cheeks. On the morning of the wedding day, a terrible event shattered the Count's hopes. The Baroness was found lying on her face dead, not far from the churchyard. And when the Count was looking out his window on getting up, full of the bliss of the happiness which he had attained, her body was being brought back to the castle. He supposed she was only in one of her usual attacks, but all efforts to bring her back to life were ineffectual. She was dead. Aurelia, instead of giving way to a violent grief, seemed rather to be struck dumb and tearless by this blow, which appeared to have a paralyzing effect on her. The Count was much distressed for her, and only ventured most cautiously and most gently to remind her that her orphaned condition rendered it necessary that conventionalities should be disregarded and that the most essential matter in the circumstances was to hasten on the marriage as much as possible, notwithstanding the loss of her mother. At this, 
Aurelia fell into the Count's arms, and whilst a flood of tears ran down her cheeks, cried in a most eager manner, and in a voice which was shrill with urgency, Yes, yes, for the love of all saints, for the sake of my soul's salvation, yes. The Count described this burst of emotion to the bitter sense that, in her orphaned condition, she did not know whither to betake herself, seeing that she could not go on staying at the castle. He took pains to procure a worthy matron as a companion for her, till in a few weeks the wedding day again came around, and this time no mischance interfered with it, and it crowned the bliss of Aurelia and Hippolytus. But Aurelia had all this while been in a curiously strained and excited condition. It was not grief for her mother, but she seemed to be unceasingly and without cessation tortured by some inward anxiety. In the midst of the most delicious love passage, she would suddenly clasp the Count in her arms, pale as death and like a person suddenly seized by some terror just as if she were trying her very utmost to resist some extraneous power which was threatening to force her to destruction, and would cry, Oh, no! No! Never! Never! Now that she was married, however, it seemed that this strained, strange, excited condition in which she had been abated and left her and the terrible inward anxiety and disturbance under which she had been laboring seemed to disappear. The Count could not but suspect the existence of some secret evil mystery by which Aurelia's inner being was tormented, but he very properly thought it would be unkind and unfeeling to ask her about it whilst her excitement lasted, and she herself avoided any explanation on the subject. However, a time came when he thought he might venture to hint gently that perhaps it would be well if she indicated to him the cause of the strange condition of her mind. She herself at once said it would be a satisfaction to open her mind to him, her beloved husband. At great was his amazement to learn that what was the bottom of the mystery was the atrociously wicked life which her mother had led that was so perturbing to her mind. Can there be anything more terrible, she said, than to have to hate, detest, and abhor one's own mother? Thus the prejudice, as far as they were called, of his father and uncle had not been unfounded, and the baroness had deceived him in the most deliberate manner. He was obliged to confess to himself, and he made no secret of it that it was a fortunate circumstance that the baroness had died on the morning of his wedding day. But Aurelia declared that as soon as her mother was dead, she had been seized by a dark and terrible terror, and could not help think that her mother would arise from her grave and drag her from her husband's arms into perdition. She said she dimly remembered one morning when she was a mere child being awakened by a frightful commotion in the house. Doors opened and shut, strangers' voices cried out in confusion, at last things becoming quieter, 
Her nurse took her in her arms and carried her into a large room where there were many people, and the man who had often played with her and given her sweetmeats lying stretched on a long table. This man she had always called Papa. And she stretched her hands out to him and wanted to kiss him. But his lips, always warm before, were cold as ice. And Aurelia broke into a violent weeping without knowing why. The nurse took her to a strange house where she remained a long while, till at last a lady came and took her away in a carriage. This was her mother, who soon took her to the residence. When Aurelia got to be about sixteen, a man came to the house whom her mother welcomed joyfully and treated with much confidentiality, receiving him with much intimacy of friendship. As being a dear old friend, he came more and more frequently, and the Baroness's style of existence was soon greatly altered for the better. Instead of living in an attic, and subsisting on the poorest affair and wearing the most wretched old clothes, she took a fine lodging in the most fashionable quarter, wore fine dresses, ate and drank with the stranger of the best and the most expensive food and drink daily, as he was daily her guest, and took her part in all the public pleasures which the residents had to offer. Aurelia was the person upon this bettering of her mother's circumstances, evidently attributable to solely the stranger, exercised no influence whatsoever. She remained shut up in her room when her mother went out to enjoy herself in the stranger's company and was obliged to live just as miserably as before. This man, though about forty, had a very fresh and youthful appearance, a tall, handsome person, and a face by no means devoid of a certain amount of manly good looks. Notwithstanding this, he was repugnant to Aurelia on account of his style behavior. He seemed to try to constrain himself, to conduct himself like a gentleman and a person of some cultivation, but there was constantly and most evidently piercing through this exterior veneer the unmistakable evidence of his really being a totally uncultured person, whose manners and habits were those of the very lowest ranks of the people. And the way in which he began to look at Aurelia filled her with terror, nay, with an abhorrence of which she could not explain the reason to herself. Up to this point, the Baroness had never taken the trouble to say a single word to Aurelia about the stranger. But now she told her his name, adding that this baron was a man of great wealth and a distant relation. She lauded his good looks and his various delightful qualities, and ended by asking Aurelia if she thought she could bring herself to take a liking to him. Aurelia made no secret of the inward destation which she felt for him. The baroness darted a glance of lightning at her, which terrified her excessively and told her she was foolish, ignorant creature. After this, she was kinder to her than she had ever been before. She was provided with grand dresses in the height of the fashion, and taken to share in all the public pleasures. The man now strove to gain her favor in a manner which rendered him more and more abhorrent to her. 
but her delicate, maidenly instincts were wounded in the most mortal manner when an unfortunate accident rendered her unwilling secret witness of an abominable atrocity between her abandoned and depraved mother and him. When, a few days after this, this man, after having taken a good deal of wine, clasped Aurelia in his arms in a way which left no doubt of his intentions. Her desperation gave her strength, and she pushed him from her so that he fell down on his back. She rushed away and bolted herself in her own room. The baroness told her, very calmly and deliberately, that inasmuch as the baron paid all the household expenses and she had not the slightest intention of going back to the old poverty of their previous life, this was a case in which any absurd coyness would be both ludicrous and inconvenient and that she would really have to make up her mind to comply with the baron's wishes because if not, he had threatened to part company at once. Instead of being affected by Aurelia's bitter tears and agonized entreaties, the old woman, breaking into the most brazen and shameless laughter, talked in the most depraved manner of a state of matters which would cause Aurelia to bid forever farewell to every feeling of enjoyment of her life in such unrestrained and detestable depravity defying and insulting all sense of ordinary propriety, so that her shame and terror were indescribable at what she was obliged to hear. In fact, she gave herself up for lost, and her only means of salvation appeared to be her immediate flight. She had managed to possess herself of the key of the ball door, had got together a few little necessaries which was absolutely required, just after midnight was moving softly through the dimly lit front hall at a time when she thought her mother was sure to be fast asleep. She was on the point of stepping quietly out into the street when the door opened with a clang and heavy footsteps came noisily up the steps. The Baroness came staggering, stumbling into the hall right up to Aurelia's feet nothing upon her but a kind of miserable rapple, all covered with dirt. Her breast and her arms were naked, her gray hair all hanging down and disheveled. And close after her came the stranger, who seized her by the hair and dragged her into the middle of the hall, crying out in a yelling voice, Wait, you old devil, you witch of hell! I'll serve you up a wedding breakfast! And with a good, thick cudgel, which he had in his hand, he set to and belabored and maltreated her with the most shameful manner. She made a terrible screaming and outcry, whilst Aurelia, scarcely knowing what she was about, screamed aloud out of the window for help. It chanced that there was a patrol and armed police just passing. The men came at once into the house. Seize him, cried the baroness, writhing in convulsions of rage and pain. Seize him, hold him fast, look at his bare back, he's... When the police sergeant heard the baroness speak the name, he shouted out in the greatest delight. Ho-ho, we've got you at last, devil alias, have we? 
and in spite of his violent resistance, they marched him off. But notwithstanding all this which had been happening, the Baroness had understood well enough what Aurelia's idea had been. She contented herself with taking her somewhat roughly by the arm, pushing her into a room and locking her up in it without saying a word. She went out early the next morning and did not come back till late in the evening, and during this time Aurelia remained a prisoner in her room, never seeing nor hearing a creature, and have nothing to eat or drink. This went on for several days. The Baroness often glared at her with eyes flashing with anger and seemed to be wrestling with some decision until one evening letters came which seemed to cause her satisfaction. Silly creature, all this is your fault. However, it seems to be all coming right now. And all I hope is that terrible punishment, which the evil spirit was threatening you with, may not come upon you. This was what the Baroness said to Aurelia, and then she became more kind and friendly, and Aurelia, no longer distressed by the presence of the horrible man, and having given up on the idea of escaping, was allowed a little more freedom. Some time had elapsed when one day, as Aurelia was sitting alone in a room, she heard a great clamor approaching in the street. The maid came running in and said they were taking the hangman's son of to prison, that he had been branded on the back there for robbery and murder and escaped and was now retaken. Aurelia, anxious, tottered to the window. Her presentiment was not all fallacious. It was the stranger or as we have styled him, and he was being brought along, firmly bound upon the tumbrel, surrounded by a strong guard. He was being taken back to undergo his sentence. Aurelia, nearly fainting, sank back into her chair as frightful wild look fell upon her, while he shook his clenched fist up at the window with the most threatening gestures. After this, the Baroness was still a great deal away from the house, but she never took Aurelia with her so that the latter led a sorrowful, miserable existence, occupied in thinking many thoughts as to destiny and the threatening future which might unexpectedly come upon her. From the maidservant, who had only come into the house subsequently to the nocturnal adventure which has been described, and who had probably only quite recently heard about the intimacy of the terms in which the baroness had been living with this criminal, Aurelia learned that the folks in the residence were very much grieved at the Baroness's having been so deceived and imposed upon by a scoundrel of this description. But Aurelia knew only too well how differently that matter had really stood. And it seemed to her impossible that, at all events, the men of the police, who had apprehended the fellow in the Baroness's very house, should not have known all about the intimacy of the relations between them. Inasmuch as she herself had told them his name and directed their attention to the brand marks on his back as proof of his identity. Moreover, this loquacious maid sometimes talked in a very ambiguous way about that which people were here and there thinking and saying, and for that matter, would like very much to know better. As to the court's having been 
making careful investigations and having gone so far as to threaten the Baroness with arrest on account of strange disclosures which the hangman's son had made concerning her. Aurelia was obliged to admit in her own mind that it was another proof of her mother's depraved way. Even after this terrible affair, she should have found it possible to go on living in the residence. But at last she felt herself constrained to leave the place where she knew she was the object of but too well-founded shameful suspicion and to fly to a more distant spot. On this journey, she came to the Count's castle and there ensued what has already been related. Aurelia could not but consider herself marvelously fortunate to have got clear of all these troubles. But how profound was her horror when, speaking to her mother in this blessed sense of the merciful intervention of heaven in her regard, the latter, with fires of hell in her eyes, cried out in a yelling voice, You are my misfortune, horrible creature that you are. But in the midst of your imagined happiness, vengeance will overtake you. I should be carried away by a sudden death. In these teutonic spasms, which your birth cost me, the subtle craft of the devil. Here, Aurelia suddenly stopped. She threw herself upon her husband's breast and implored him to spare her the complete recital of what the baroness had said to her in the delirium of her insanity. She said she felt her inmost heart and soul crushed to pieces at the bare idea of the frightful threatenings. Far beyond the wildest imagination's conception of the terrible, uttered to her by her mother, possessed as she was at the time, by the most diabolical powers. The Count comforted his bride to the best of his ability, although he felt himself permeated by the coldest and most deathly shuddering horror. Even when he had regained some calmness, he could not but confess to himself that the profound horribleness of the Baroness, even now that she was dead, cast a deep shadow over his life sun-bright as it otherwise seemed to be. In a very short time, Aurelia began to alter very perceptibly, whilst the deathly paleness of her face and the fatigued appearance of her eyes seemed to point to some bodily ailment, her mental state, confused, variable, restless, as if were constantly frightened at something, led to the conclusion there was some fresh mystery perturbing her system. She shunned her husband, shut herself up in her rooms, sought the most solitary walks in the park, and when she then allowed herself to be seen, her eyes red with weeping, her contorted features gave unmistakable evidence of some terrible suffering which she had been undergoing. It was in vain that the Count took every possible pains to discover the cause of this condition of hers, and the only thing which had any effect in bringing him out of hopeless state into which those remarkable symptoms of his wife had plunged him, was the deliberate opinion of a celebrated doctor, that this strangely excited condition of the Countess was nothing other than the natural result of a bodily state which indicated the happy result of a fortunate marriage." 
This doctor, on one occasion, when he was at the table with the Count and Countess, permitted himself sundry allusions to this presumed state of what the German nations call good hope. The Countess seemed to listen to all this with indifference for some time. But suddenly, her attention became vividly awakened when the doctor spoke of the wonderful longings which women in that condition become possessed by, and which they cannot resist without the most injurious effects supervening upon their own health, and even upon that of a child. The countess overwhelmed the doctor with questions, and the latter did not weary of quoting the strangest and most entertaining cases of this description from his own practice and experience. Moreover, he said, there are cases on record which women have been led by these strange, abnormal longings to commit most terrible crimes. There was a certain blacksmith's wife which had such an irresistible longing for her husband's flesh that one night when he came home, the worse for liquor, she set upon him with a large knife and cut him up so frightfully that he died in a few hours' time. Scarcely had the doctor said these words when the countess fell back in her chair fainting, and was with much difficulty recovered from the succession of hysterical attacks which supervened. The doctor then saw that he had acted very thoughtlessly in alluding to such a frightful occurrence in the presence of a lady whose nervous system was in such a delicate condition. However, this crisis seemed to have a beneficial effect upon her, for she became calmer, although soon afterwards there came upon her a very remarkable condition of rigidity, as of benumbness. There was a darksome fire in her eyes, and her death-like pallor increased to such an extent that the Count was driven into new and most tormenting doubts as to her condition. The most inexplicable thing was that she never took the smallest morsel of anything to eat. Evicing the most repugnance at the sight of all food, particularly meat. This repugnance was so invincible that she was constantly obliged to get up and leave the table with the most marked indications of loathing. The doctor's skill was in vain, and the Count's most urgent and affectionate entreaties powerless to induce her to take even a drop of medicine of any kind. And inasmuch as weeks, nay months, had passed without her having taken so much as a morsel of food, and it had become an unfathomable mystery how she managed to keep alive. The doctor came to the conclusion that there was something in the case which lay beyond the domain of ordinary human science. He made some pretext for leaving the castle, but the Count saw clearly enough that this doctor, whose skillfulness was well approved, and who had a high reputation to maintain, felt that the countess's condition was too unintelligible, and, in fact, too strangely mysterious for him to stay on there, witness of an illness impossible to understand, as to which he felt he had no power to render assistance. 
It may be readily imagined into what a state of mind all this put the Count. But there was more to come. Just at this juncture, an old privileged servant took an opportunity, when he found the Count alone, of telling him that the Countess went out every night and did not come home till daybreak. The Count's blood ran cold. It struck him as a matter which he had not quite realized before, that for a short time back there had fallen upon him, regularly about midnight, a curiously unnatural sleepiness, which he now believed to be caused by some narcotic administered to him by the Countess, to enable her to get away unobserved. The darkest suspicions and foreboding came into his mind. He thought of the diabolical mother, and that, perhaps, her instincts had begun to awake in her daughter. He thought of some possibility of a conjugal infidelity. He remembered the terrible hangman's son. It was so ordained that the very next night was to explain this terrible mystery to him, that which alone could be the key to the countess's strange condition. She herself used every evening to make the tea which the Count always took before going to bed. This evening he did not take a drop of it, and when he went to bed he had not the slightest symptom of sleepiness which generally came upon him as it got towards midnight. However, he lay back on his pillows and had all the appearance of being fast asleep as usual. And then the countess rose up very quietly, with the utmost precaution, came up to his bedside, held a lamp up to his eyes, and then, convinced that he was sound asleep, went softly out of the room. His heart throbbed fast. He got up, put on a cloak, and went after the countess. It was a fine moonlit night, so that though Aurelia had got a considerable start, he could see her distinctly going along in the distance in her white dress. She went through the park, right on to the burying ground, and there she disappeared at the wall. The Count ran quickly after her in through the gate of the burying ground, which he found open. There, in the bright moonlight, he saw a circle of frightful, spectral-looking creatures. Old women, half-naked, were cowering down upon the ground, and in the midst of them lay the corpse of a man, which they were tearing at with wolfish appetite. Aurelia was amongst them. The Count took flight in the wildest horror and ran without any idea where he was going or what he was doing, impelled by the deadliest terror, all about the walks in the park till he found himself at the door of his own castle as the day was breaking, bathed in cold perspiration. Involuntarily, without the capability of taking hold of a thought, he dashed up the steps and went bursting through the passages and into his own bedroom. There lay the countess, to all appearances in the deepest and sweetest of sleeps, and the count would fain have persuaded himself that some deceptive dream, imagined or inasmuch as his cloak what with due was proof, if he had been needed, that he really had been to the burying ground in the night. Some soul-deceiving phantom had been the cause of his deathly horror. He did not wait for Aurelia's waking, 
but left the room dressed and got on to his horse. His ride in the exquisite morning amid sweet-scented trees and shrubs, whence the happy songs of the newly awakened birds greeted him, drove from his memory for a time the terrible images of the night. He went back to the castle comforted and gladdened in heart. But when he and the countess sat down alone together at table, and, the dishes being brought and handed, she rose to hurry away with loathing at the sight of the food as usual. The terrible conviction that what he had seen was true, was reality, impressed itself irresistibly to his mind. In the wildest fury, he rose from his seat, crying, Accursed! Miss Birth of Hell! I understand your hatred of the food of mankind. You get your sustenance out of the burying ground, damnable creature that you are. As soon as those words had passed his lips, the countess flew at him, uttering a sound between a snarl and a howl, and bit on him the breast with the fury of a hyena. He dashed her from him to the ground, raving fiercely as she was, and she gave up the ghost in the most terrible convulsions. The Count became a maniac. The end. Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts. With me, your ghost is Deborah Marley. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Marley's Ghosts or send me an email at Marley's Ghosts Podcast and gmail.com. I love hearing from you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, visit my Patreon where we have lots of tiers to choose from, each with their own special treats. Rate and review so our community of Dreadtime listeners can grow. Until next time, my Darlings, sleep well.